Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Hey, Real Life Church, it's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again. This is week three of our unusual little series about spiritual warfare. Uh, And as we draw into the Halloween weekend, let me say, first of all, thanks to all of you who have gone out of your way to make sure that you invite somebody to our big Halloween party here at Real Life Church. This is one of our big outreaches of the year. I think we had 1,500 people come last year. uh, And uh, I baptized somebody this year who first set foot on our church property last year uh, at our Halloween party. So thanks for those of you who are Uh, about the business of making this an opportunity to invite people into our church family here. Um, And thanks to all of you who have brought candy for our Halloween party, because Miss Stacy and our children's ministry appreciates your generosity and loves being able to uh, offer candy to all of our kids at our gathering. Uh, Make sure that as you're inviting people to church, always be thinking of what's the next step for this person? What's the next step I'm going to invite this person to? Because the goal isn't just to get somebody to come here once and then disappear. So when I invite people to church, uh, after they come to an event, let's say, let's come to the Halloween thing first, I'm always thinking, is there a small group I can invite this person to? Because sometimes they'll come to your small group before they come to a worship service, right? If they, you know, Sunday might be the next invitation, but it might be invite them to your small group. Or our Christmas Eve services are right around the corner. And so you can invite people back uh, for our Christmas services. And that's a beautiful opportunity for them to join us for, for worship uh, in a special season. So uh, be thinking about that uh, as you are uh, out there in the world, uh, working as a missionary and an ambassador for Jesus, bringing the gospel to the world. Hey, we're going to get back into the study now. Uh, This is our third and last week on spiritual warfare. Kind of an unusual topic for us. This is not my my go-to topic, but it it is the Halloween season. And it's important that we be prepared for the realities of the spiritual world around us, just like we prepare ourselves for the physical world around us. Uh, When you raise your kids, you prepare them for for school and maybe college, uh, uh, career and family and relationships. You try to Give them as as much preparation as you can for the things they're going to face in life. But it would be ignorant to not prepare ourselves and our kids, our families, for the spiritual realities that exist in this world. So that's what we're doing in this series. Uh, But as usual, uh, sometimes this is a heavy topic for little ears. And so if you have kids who are watching, you might want to send them in the next room for this, uh, this message, because sometimes... Uh, it, it can be a scary thing for little kids if uh, if this comes from somebody other than mom and dad at the right time in the right way. So that's that's my that's my warning for you. Uh, that's our PG thirteen warning. Let's take a minute. Let's pray together, and then we'll get into God's word. Jesus, thank you that you love us and that you long to prepare us for this world and this life. That you long to walk through life with us, and that as much as we invite you in, uh, you jump at the chance. I thank you that. At every step along the way, you are eager to guide us and walk beside us and carry us. So Jesus, we invite you in. Open our ears and our hearts to your word. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right. This is uh, message three, and I'm calling this one Demon Proofing Your Life. 
because I want to talk about how best we prepare ourselves for the spiritual challenges that we face in this life. And I want to do this by reading uh, Acts chapter 19. We're going to read most of the chapter because this is a passage in which the Apostle Paul describes how best we position ourselves for life and what happens when people go out into the spiritual realm unprepared. So look at Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 1, and listen to God's word. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. Okay, a lot of proper nouns there. Corinth is a city in which Paul started a church. In the Bible, we have 1st and 2nd Corinthians because he wrote letters to that church. After he left, another Christian preacher named Apollos came in and began preaching at Corinth. And this was Paul's method. He would start a church, he would put leaders in charge of it, and then he would go off to start another church, and those leaders would then take responsibility for the church. And Apollos became a sort of a pastor in the church of Corinth that Paul started. But in the letters that the Corinthians write to Paul, they're fighting with each other, they're arguing with each other, and one of the things they're saying is that they like Apollos better than Paul, and maybe they don't have to listen to Paul because Apollos is a better public speaker. Apollos is, is bad for every pastor's ministry. Every pastor tries to bring up young leaders in the faith only to find out people like them better. And uh, that's Paul's experience at Corinth. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he begins by resigning from his own fan club. He says, it's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's about God. Uh, and so that's, that's Paul. And uh, he started the church at Corinth, put Apollos in charge. And now he's headed off to Ephesus, which, remember, is a city we've been talking about where Paul started a church, and then John, the disciple of Jesus, the beloved disciple, went to Ephesus and became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Okay. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you, now when he says disciples, he means Christians. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Okay, so if, if you grew up in church in America and you understood <clears throat> anything of Christian theology, you were taught anything about Christian theology, you've heard that the Christian faith is Trinitarian. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, all one, but in three expressions, perhaps, or three persons. The early church struggled over the right language with which to, to describe this. And, and modern preachers have tried to describe this using analogies for the Trinity, Trinity none of which are perfect. So a famous Christian missionary compared it to a three-leaf clover. If you pull a leaf off a three-leaf clover, it's not a three-leaf clover anymore. It takes all three to have the identity of a three-leaf clover. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a little closer together than the three leaves on a three-leaf clover. It's, it's, a, it's an analogy. Uh, some have tried to compare it to uh, water which can be ice, water, or steam. H2O can be, and it's the same essence. It's all H2O, but it comes in three different forms. It's probably better than the three-leaf clover, but it's not perfect. Um, so here, Christians in Ephesus have come to believe in Jesus and have never heard of the Holy Spirit. Because in that early Christian church, they're still formulating how to talk about the Trinity. They never even used the word Trinity. That's an early church word, but not a Bible word. And so they're still trying to figure out how to talk about it. We know that they, they are talking about a trinity because in Matthew, at the very last chapter, Jesus says, go baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the language of trinity is in there, but they're still trying to formulate uh, what that means. So here are some, some believers 
and this, this probably means Christians, who, uh, who have never heard of the Holy Spirit before, which means they came to believe in Jesus, but were not taught about the Holy Spirit. So Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Uh, and they're referring to John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, who before Jesus' ministry was out in the wilderness at the Jordan River, baptizing people. And we don't know where the idea of baptism actually came from, because there's no text in the Bible in which God tells John the Baptist, you take people out in the river, you dunk them down, and you say these words. That's never commanded or instructed. We just see John doing it. And what John is doing here is sort of a, uh, a prophetic symbol, the way the prophets of the Old Testament did. The, the prophets of the Old Testament would do things like lie down in the street for a year or uh, carry around some dirty undergarments or uh, smash a pot in the middle of a public square. They would do these symbolic acts that would make everybody stop and look and say, what's that about? And then the, the, the act itself was a metaphor for what God was saying to his people. So John is taking people out to the Jordan River and having them dunk down in the water and come out again. And people hear this and say, let's go see what he's doing. What's that guy doing out there? That's weird. And then they discover it's a symbol for what God has to say to the people. You are filthy in your sins and you need to be washed clean and then change your life. That's John's baptism. So, so these, these guys are saying, we've received John's baptism. We've been out with John in the water and been, been dunked. And uh, you, could, you could take that to mean maybe these are just Jewish believers uh, who uh, have received John's baptism but haven't become Christians yet. Uh, Luke would not use the word disciples for that. It says, we met some disciples. Disciples are followers. And when, when Luke uses the word disciples, he's referring to Christians. He would not call Jewish people disciples. So, so they've received the baptism for the repentance of sins but they have, uh, they have not yet uh, received the Holy Spirit other than to uh, become a Christian. So in, in, in a way, they've received the Spirit, but they haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We'll see. Verse 4. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, Again, I think they've already become Christians, but I think in this moment they're being baptized uh, in Jesus' name. So this is a, a second baptism because Jesus' disciples went around baptizing people the way John did. They picked up John's symbol, but now it became baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it was a, a deeper and richer symbol. It's not just for the repentance of sins. It's for the repentance of sins and the acceptance of God's grace. When we're baptized in Jesus' name, we believe not just that we should be better behaved, but that Jesus died for us on the cross. And any punishment we deserved, he took it for us. So we're forgiven, we're innocent. We're washed clean by Jesus and for Jesus. So that's, that's baptism in Jesus' name. And that's a first step whenever somebody comes to believe. If you've become a Christian, one of the first things you should do is be baptized in Jesus' name. It's a symbol to you that you have absolutely been forgiven. You can always remember that symbol. Anytime you feel guilty, anytime you feel ashamed or worried, I've been baptized, I've been washed clean. And it's a symbol to the community, to the church. We celebrate the fact that, that Jesus is, is still reaching hearts 
and calling them to himself. Okay, verse six. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift in the New Testament in which someone either speaks in a a human language that they've never learned, as as happens in Acts chapter 2, or they speak in a special language of prayer. Uh, And you may have seen people do this in the media. You can Google this if you've never seen it before. And they speak in uh, what sounds like a kind of gibberish. It's a string of phonemes that don't make sense. Uh, but are a special prayer language that can be spoken and interpreted. And when Paul prays for these 12, they receive the Holy Spirit in, in this powerful way. They're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, what Paul is doing here is preparing them for the spiritual realities of this world. When I was a kid, I learned how to play chess. My dad taught me how to play chess. And chess is sort of an intricate, complicated board game uh, in which you try to strategize and expect the opponent's moves. And when my dad was teaching me how to play chess, I remember him saying to me, the best defense is a good offense. The best way to defend yourself is to keep the other person on the defense. And, uh, and that's, a, that's a, a principle that has been true uh, in, in more ways than one. And in the spiritual world, in the spiritual life, the best defense is a good offense. Um, The best defense is inviting the Holy Spirit into our hearts. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit puts up a sign that says no vacancy, right? The Holy Spirit is a single uh, occupant uh, uh, renter, right? Or single occupant guest. And they're not going to let any other spirits in. Uh, And in that way, we invite the Holy Spirit in to put up a no vacancy sign before we're ever attacked or threatened, right? And that's, that's a good offense, right? That, that's before we ever end up in a fight, we're already prepared. The Holy Spirit is in us and is empowering us and protecting us. And that's, a, uh, that's, what, that's what Paul is doing. When he baptizes these guys and, and prays for them, they receive not just belief in Jesus, but the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you can read about this elsewhere in the book of Acts. I know a lot of people who are Christians who've never experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it is a significant experiential moment in which the Holy Spirit um, empowers us and in a sense overwhelms us in a way that's different than just intellectually assenting to the existence of God. Uh, My friend Ryan Montague um, has talked about this and written about this in his books. Um, And he describes a moment in which he was reading a book about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And in reading about it, he thought, now this has to be a real thing. And I want this. And he went and he sat down by himself, sat in a quiet place by himself and prayed. And he said, I think he sat there for 20 or 30 minutes, just quietly praying that the Holy Spirit would come and fill him. And and he said there, there was this moment where he suddenly felt overwhelmed by this overpowering sense of being absolutely loved. He said it was this transformative emotional experience that felt like some kind of chemical coursing through him. When you, when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, it's, a, it's an experiential moment. 
It's not just an intellectual moment. It's a moment where you feel something that's not you fill you up and empower you. And that's available to everybody. Uh, and some people who have never asked for that before should begin to ask for it. Just begin in a life of prayer to say, I, I want the Holy Spirit in new ways. And some people have described the Holy Spirit's filling like uh, flying in a hot air balloon. Uh, the hot air balloon's already up in the air, but when it sees a mountain coming up, it has to release more heat, more fire and gas into the balloon so it goes higher to get over the mountain. And so when you believe in Jesus, you already have the Holy Spirit in you. Uh, the Holy Spirit's already come and, and made a home there. But when you invite the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's a, a new empowering that allows you to take on bigger challenges than you've taken on before. It allows you to overcome things that you have not overcome before. Uh, and some people, I think, just need to take time and ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal more of itself to, uh, to them. Uh, and if you want to do that, uh, I'd encourage uh, reading about it, reading the Bible passages in which people are baptized in the Spirit, uh, and praying for it. But when we invite the Holy Spirit in, it puts up a no vacancy sign, and that prepares us for the spiritual challenges of life, which is what comes in uh, immediately next in this passage. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Before Christianity was called Christianity, it was called the way. And the word here in Greek, hados, is road, because Jesus at one point says, I am the way and the truth and the life. This is in the Gospel of John. I am the way and the truth and the life. And the word for way that he uses is hados. We could easily translate it, I am the road and the truth and the life. Hados actually is the, the Greek root for the word road. The H became an R and hados became road. I am the road and the truth and the life. And these people began maligning the road, the way, the pathway to God. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know anything about the lecture hall of Tyrannus, but we know that Paul every day set up a forum in which he could discuss and debate and chew on the message of Christianity for whichever crowds would come. And listen to the results that came from this in verse 10. This went on for two years, daily for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, when they say the province of Asia, that's not Asia as we think of it today. It's not China. It's Turkey. Right? We would call this the Middle East, Middle East today. But Paul somehow developed a forum in which people were invited in to discuss Christianity, and he did it every day for two years. And all the Jews and Greeks who lived in uh, what's sometimes called Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. That probably means that he reached a million people. Whatever ministry this was, it was phenomenal. It's kind of like when our church hosts Alpha, which we're going to do again in the spring, where we invite people who don't go to church to a free dinner, and we watch a video about what it means to be a Christian, and then we discuss it around tables. And the only rule at the tables is that if you're a Christian, you can't tell anyone they're wrong. The goal of this is not correct people or straighten out their theology or tell them to behave differently. The goal is to invite 
open conversation about the subject of Christianity. And that's exactly what he was doing here. And as a result, probably a million people heard the gospel. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. Now listen to this story. This is, this is curious. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Now, this says some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, as though it was a description. But in fact, it, it reads more like a, a job title in the Greek. It's two words. It's uh, the word for walking around, the peripateo, like the wandering, and then the went around casting out demons is all one word, and it's exorkiston, exorkiston, from which we get exorcist. This literally says some Jewish people who were wandering exorcists. It's not a description. It's a, it's a job title. Right, put this on your LinkedIn and see what kind of recruiters give you a call. I see from your experience you have a yeah, I see from your, your job, you have some experience in this area. Put this on your LinkedIn and see how that goes. Um, these are wandering exorcists. This is what they do. And that might sound strange to the modern American, but in the Catholic Church, there is actually a job title for an exorcist. And you may have heard of this because it's been in the movies and whatnot, but it's actually like a priest. It's a position that you train for and are appointed to. And they are the ones who are called when people are seeing ghosts in their houses. Or, or somebody is feeling possessed or behaving in strange ways. In the Catholic Church, they actually call uh, one of these exorcists. And in fact, in recent years, there have been news articles in the New York Times that have reported the Catholic Church cannot find enough exorcists to deal with all the phone calls they're getting from people who need one. And there's a fairly rigorous vetting process that they go through before they'll perform an exorcism to make sure it's not just mental illness or somebody faking it. There's a pretty rigorous process by which they'll weed them out. And even given that, they don't have enough exorcists in the Catholic Church to deal with all the calls they're getting. I even saw this last week. Um, Olivia Rodrigo was on uh, Jimmy Kimmel, if you watch late night comedy. And uh, she described a story in which her mom, as a little girl, saw a man walking around in their house at night, right, an apparition of a man, and found out later that a man had died in that house before they bought it. And uh, so this is, this is a common belief in secular society. It seems silly to me when Christians breeze past it. The, the secular world around us believes in this. And uh, the Catholic Church can't get enough Catholic exorcists to deal with it. So anyway, that's what these are. These are Jewish exorcists. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, if you've been with me the last couple of weeks, if you watch our podcast at reallife.la, you've been in, in church following this, you know this is not quite the right words. We've talked about the fact that when we sense there's something wrong in our lives, the language we use is, in the name of Jesus, get out. And when you believe in Jesus, you have his authority in you. You have the authority to tell unclean things to go away. And they don't get to debate. They have to go. These guys are saying the wrong words. They're saying, in the name of the Jesus, the, the one that Paul talks about, they sound like they're, they're unfamiliar with it. They sound like they're not quite sure who they're talking about. And this was actually part of a practice 
uh, in some of the religions of the first century world where instead of commanding unclean spirits to get out, they would pray to what they thought were angels or messengers and ask the messengers to come and do the work of exorcism. And that's what these, these Jewish exorcists are doing. They're, they think Paul is some kind of an angel and they're calling on Paul to intervene for, for his God and, and do the work. And that, that, is not, that is not the language that the New Testament teaches. Seven, this is verse 14 now. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. So this, these are people of some authority in the Jewish hierarchy. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Fair warning, this isn't a game. Uh, this isn't safe. If you believe in Jesus, you have Jesus' authority in you. And you can tell these things to go away, and they have to. It's like a parent telling a spoiled two-year-old child who's throwing a temper tantrum to go to their room. The child doesn't get to argue. The child has to go. When you believe in Jesus, you have Jesus' authority in you. And the correct wording is, in the name of Jesus, get out. You don't have to ask for Paul's authority or somebody else's authority. The language is in the name of Jesus, get out. And you have every authority to make that command. I want to impress on you again, this isn't a game. This is, this is real stuff. Um, and I'll, um, I'll tell you a story um, that you may have heard before, but you may not realize how true this is. You've seen or heard of the movie The Exorcist, right? Famous horror movie from the 1970s. One of the classics of the horror genre. Really helped shape the, the genre. And in the movie, a priest performs an exorcist over a little girl who's possessed. And it really defined all the, the demon and exorcist movies that have come since then. They all harken back to, to this one. What you may not realize is that that was a true story. It wasn't fabricated at all. The movie embellishes it and changes it a little bit. But it was actually a story about a little boy in the 1940s uh, who was experiencing all kinds of torment. And priests came and performed multiple exorcisms on him. And eyewitnesses saw physical harm come to his body in inexplicable ways while the exorcisms were performed. He came into the state after playing with a Ouija board that his aunt bought him. I've told you, if you have a Ouija board, throw it away. And, uh, and he, uh, he went through these exorcisms and was eventually cleaned of all these demons. And his identity was largely kept secret, but people figured out who he was. And he actually went on to become a, an engineer with NASA. And uh, he died not that long ago. Um, but he tried to keep his identity secret the whole, his whole life because he didn't want blowback or people showing up at his house. Um, and so in the movie, they actually make the story about a little girl, which was part of hiding his identity. But the, the novel that the movie was based on came out in 1971, and it was written by a devoutly Christian man who wrote the novel and kept referring to his novel as an apostolic letter. And he said, I wrote this novel to scare a generation back to church. Because what he was doing was reporting on a true story. He wasn't trying to write a fantasy. This wasn't Stephen King. 
He wasn't trying to write a fantasy novel to make a lot of money. He was trying to report intentionally on something that actually happened so that people would be aware of it. The filmmaker who was chosen to make the movie The Exorcist was a Christian guy and was chosen intentionally because the intention was that it would be a Christian movie. Now, you've probably never heard The Exorcist talk about that way before. It's not usually in the top three Christian movies that we show to the kids. Hey, kids, we're going to watch The Passion of the Christ, Prince of Egypt, and The Exorcist. Sleep well, kids! But it was written to be a Christian novel, and it was made to be a Christian movie. Now, I don't recommend this movie for kids at all. It's a, it's a gross movie, and it's scary. And a lot of people don't, don't need to see this movie. But the point is, the story was real. And the movie was just trying to capture something that really happens in our world to say, hey, this isn't a game. Don't play with this stuff. Don't pretend. And don't get into it if you don't know what you're doing. Make sure you've read the stories of Jesus and the things that he did and the things the early Christians did, how they dealt with these things uh, before you mess with it. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 17. A lot of reading today. When, the, when this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. I bet they were. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Um, and I should tell you as a pastor, I do not support book burning of any kind. I don't think we should burn books from other religions because we should seek to understand people whom Jesus loves who don't know Jesus. And understanding their worldview is part of that. And I would much rather approach that intelligently and try to understand where they're coming from and, and what it is that draws them to other religions rather than trying to silence other religions. But I make special exception for witchcraft. If you have Ouija boards or crystals or tarot cards or palm reading materials or those God's eye dream catcher things, throw all that junk away. I don't need to understand that culture. You need to get rid of it. Throw all that crap in the trash can and stop acting like a pagan because that is not something that Christians dabble in. And I've heard people say, oh yeah, I, I got into this because my friend, is she's a Christian and she does it. No, she's not. She She's acting like she's a Christian. She's telling you she's a Christian, but she's not. Christians don't practice sorcery and witchcraft and other alternative spiritualities. And I don't care if it's some souvenir you got on a trip to Taiwan or Africa or some Native American reservation. If it summons alternative spiritual powers, don't do it, throw it away. This stuff isn't a game. Demons, remember, are rats, and rats are attracted to garbage. And if you kill all the rats in your house, but you leave a pile of garbage out in the garage, more rats are gonna come. You have to get rid of the garbage. And so if you have alternative spiritual, you know, books of spells or how to practice witchcraft or how to summon energies, throw that junk away. You don't have to have a special ceremony and go burn it. Put it in the trash can and get rid of it. <clears throat> when they calculated the values of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. Drachma was a Greek coin that was worth a day's wage. Uh, in Rome, it was a denarius. In Greek, it's a drachma. Uh, if you work for a day, if you're a day laborer, you got a, a drachma and that, you could use that to buy food. Uh, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, so as we round out this series, uh, let me make sure we go through the basics. Make sure we understand this. Um, this is how to demon-proof your life. These things are real. 
And this is a real part of the world. Uh, as we said in the beginning, you shouldn't be afraid of it. And you shouldn't be fanatical about it. You should just go about your life in faith. And it starts by giving your life to Jesus. By saying, Jesus, I trust you. I know that you have all power and all authority. I'm going to put my life in your hands. Now, please give me your Holy Spirit. Let your Holy Spirit come into my heart and put up a no vacancy sign so nothing else can bother me. Come and live in my heart and baptize me and fill me and empower me. And then take, uh, take the, the junk that uh, has piled up in your life, whatever garbage it is, and throw it away. And maybe it's not specifically alternative spiritualities. Maybe it's just sinful junk that you know you shouldn't do, but you keep going back to. Throw it away and ask some other good, faithful Christian person to help you with that struggle. And then if something feels like it's clinging to you or nipping at your heels, like something keeps following you around and bothering you, uh, like um, I've heard people say, I feel like I'm just cursed. I feel like I can't get rid of this thing. The appropriate language is, in the name of Jesus, get out. And they don't get to vote and they don't get to have a conversation. But don't let them stay tell them to go. What this is, is exactly in the spiritual realm, what happens in the physical realm. I've told you that the physical realm and the spiritual realm are also often made by the same God. They often work exactly the same way. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised that there are things like angels and demons, because in the physical realm, God can create different species. God can create humans. God can create cats and dogs, not the same species, don't work the same way. And some of them can choose to do good and evil, right? People can choose to do good or evil. Well, it's not a stretch to say God can create angels. It's just a different kind of species of thing. And just like in the physical realm, people can choose to obey God or not. A, a person who chooses to obey God, we might call a believer. And a person who chooses to disobey God, we might call an unbeliever. Um, an angel who chooses to believe in God, we call an angel. And an angel who chooses to reject God, we call a demon. Okay? Um, a dog who chooses to uh, be good, we just call a dog because dogs are good and you know, cats, cats are cats. Um, but the physical realm and the sp spiritual realm are parallel. They work the same way. Uh, what, I, what I'm recommending is a health regimen for the spiritual realm that's exactly like a health regimen for the physical realm. In the physical realm, when we want to be healthy, what do we do? Uh, we, we get a, a gym membership. We get healthy food. We commit ourselves to healthy practices. We invite healthy practices in and we throw away the junk. We take all the Snickers bars and the potato chips and we throw them away. And then we put up boundaries that says, I'm, I'm not going to keep going towards the things that attract me to unhealthiness. I'm not going to keep hanging out in the snack aisle of the grocery store. And the same thing works in the spiritual realm. We invite healthy things in, we throw health, unhealthy things out, and then we put up a boundary. And that's exactly how this Ought to work, and I hope that if we get nothing else from this series of teachings, uh, we carry that away. Um, the scriptures teach that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus, and the day will come where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of us will be aware of this in the end, and for some of us, that will be a beautiful day of thanksgiving, and for some of us, it will be a painful day of reckoning. Make good decisions before that day comes. Don't chase after alternative spiritualities, but make Jesus the center of your heart and your life. Invite him in and let his light shine in the darkness. 
And then I commission you to go out into the world and put demons in their place. Amen. Jesus, thank you that all authority and power belongs to you, that we don't have to dwell on the darkness of this world, but instead we can live in the light and focus on the light. We invite you in, fill our hearts with your light, and may that shine through in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go be the church. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.